Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we literally dive deep into the internet with Dr. Katrina Wallace, founder of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance. But first, our regular wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Lizzie, what's your take on the crazy blue world of ticks and strike-offs this week? Uh, look, it's it's a little bit hard to make sense of what's happening at Twitter just because it seems so chaotic. And uh, in some ways, I think we're getting an insight into how Elon Musk made his billions, which is uh, probably less to do with his natural talents and abilities and more to do with those around him because he's putting his frailties on full display. Uh, and it's kind of shocking to watch a $44 billion investment deteriorate in real time. You know, I was wondering whether this is one of the fastest destructions of wealth that we've seen in recent times uh, because the company I don't think is anywhere near worth that. It's a real possibility now that they could be facing bankruptcy. Reports coming out of Twitter HQ or what's left of it is that um, Elon has mentioned that in uh, an all-hands staff meeting that there's a possibility of bankruptcy. Obviously, there's been huge layoffs of staff. uh, and Basically, uh, all the Australian staff are gone, aren't they? Yeah, and, um, you know, whole teams are gone. Apparently there's no communications team, so approaching Elon Musk for comment has got its own difficulties now. But, yeah, like also safety teams and things like that. So the the more complex work that Twitter was doing, you know, Twitter is obviously a platform that's had a history of tolerating uh, bad behaviour, I think it's fair to say, and and a lot of people didn't find it a particularly welcoming space. Uh, But I think uh, that has been shifting or there's been an investment in that activity in recent times in improving the experience and improving safety and getting on top of bad behaviour online, but also probably misinformation and the like, or certainly an attempt to get that under control. I think there's always going to be difficulties in a platform like that, but that has now all gone, it seems. Um, the verification- Let's just stay on that for a sec. They had done some really interesting work, particularly in building in friction in the spread of content. Mm. That's all gone, we think? Uh, this, As I understand it, the safety team is gone, but, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's also this talk that they're trying to rehire people back. Um, not exactly sure. It just appears like complete chaos and eventually they're going to run out of money, I would have thought. So, yeah, I suppose what I'd say is I think there's always been difficulties with the platform and it's always difficult to curate it well, but it did seem it was worth the effort. Uh, but Elon Musk appeared to disagree and... Um, it seems inevitable now that the platform can't survive, uh, but we will we will see what happens. I was wondering, yeah, anyway, we can talk about what might happen in the future for Twitter but and what alternatives there might be to Elon continuing to own it, for example. But um, I did want to point out that the verification program that he was pushing is also changing on a daily basis, but essentially that charging for verification. I do think it's interesting that I, saw, I read a, a little bit of analysis of Twitter a while back where there was a proposal to verify everybody who used it. And there is a way, I think, to approach that task that would make it a better platform in some ways, like verification that wasn't based on paying a fee, that was based on authenticity to try and slow down the creation of bots and and other kinds of misinformation problems that the platform experienced. But of course, this is not what Elon's doing at all. So he's doing the opposite. He's trying to use it as a monetization strategy and and has failed. There's a lot to talk about that. Um, I think, you know, it's very difficult if you were a a user that relied on verification, you're an organisation or you're an individual, you're a dissident, there's real human consequences to messing around with that system there's also just a bunch of ridiculous stuff going on where brands are uh, being denigrated um obviously public figures then are now tweeting out things um there's nice little collections online you can look at them before the the platform maybe doesn't isn't able to host them anymore um but it is it does feel a little bit like it's the last day of school for the year um and everyone's just kind of slowly losing it it is sad i'd be interested to know what what everybody else in the panel thinks might be for twitter next yeah, I was going to, before I go to Dan, who's spent most of last night trying to work out how to get onto Mastodon, um, Kat, what's your take on where Twitter stood in terms of platforms that were taking responsibility and where you think the current journey is going to take us? Yeah, so it's so interesting listening to Lizzie because I, I disagree with a lot of that. I think there is madness in his madness that makes it incredibly sane what he's doing. So Twitter is... Look, the only way we're going to remedy Web 2.0 and the hideous nature of social media, including Twitter, is to break it down, pull it apart, 
break it right down and then rebuild it probably on a subscription model. So if I look at the things that he's doing, even though it sounds mad, to me, it's actually quite a logical thing. And if I was respons- uh, approaching it as a responsible technology strategist, this is what we've been calling for the tech social media giants to do for a long time is to move into a subscription model, do not rely on the advertisers. So, so that's what I'm saying. I don't think he's mad at all. I think he's, in fact, very clever, but just appears like a madman, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is if you're not in the web three in the metaverse world, you don't know that Twitter, along with Discord, is the place for the crypto community to be. So there's a whole new world of users who are not old people like us who are coming in and using Twitter really effectively. And this is much younger cohort all coming out of the Web3 community. So will it go bankrupt? Possibly. Is it gone? I don't think so. Will it be reinvented? I think so. And this will be a passion project of of Musk's. And I, I think he needs to break the shit out of it, rebuild it. And I think that's what he's doing. Dan? Um, I think I sit somewhere between Kat and Lizzie. Um, I think that (laughs) the execution of Elon has been appalling. I mean, you know, for example, rocking into the office and tweeting a photo of you carrying a kitchen sink uh, and saying, let that sink in just before you sack half the workforce is the definition of callous. Uh, It's it's pretty insensitive. Getting rid of the safety and moderation teams, I think, is also madness, um, given how difficult it was keeping the content safe as it was and i think charging for verification is is the wrong thing i think it's exactly the wrong thing to charge for but all that said i think i agree with uh cat to some extent in that i i view twitter kind of as the front page of the of the news internet if you like and i guess lots of other people do too and i love it for that reason by the way because it's just such a great aggregation of different uh, perspectives from different news sources and if it is a lot like a news service or more like a news service than, say, a social media platform like Instagram, then it really, the, the kind of advertising that works on there is quite limited to brand advertising. And therefore, the only way you can survive and actually build a material business is by some form of consumer revenue or consumer subscription. And if you take the, the 300 or 350 million monthly Twitter users that exist today, and you convert about 2% of them, which is about the average of what a new service converts to become a subscriber, then that's about a billion dollars worth of revenue. So if he doesn't stuff it up in the meantime, he could end up building a relatively meaningful business. The problem is, to Lizzie's point, he kind of is creating so much carnage on the way through and people are abandoning it at such a high velocity that it might not survive to make it through to that point. But I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. I mean, that probably takes us to Mastodon, but tell me, Pete, if you want me to go into well, that Well, no, now. no, look, let's have a look at just what the room's saying. The majority say they're hanging in there. A couple have jumped off. Another, you know, 20% of us have never been there. So um, kudos to you. I was interesting. I was doing an, a, a politics in the pub on um, Wednesday night, launching Jordan's fantastic new book, Disconnect. And one of the women that got up said, I have just left Twitter. I'd built up 56,000 followers, but I'm done. And it it kind of strikes me as a really Twitter thing to do. <laughs> that we, something happens and everyone goes, ah. And, and like before, we've actually worked out what's coming down the other end. Um, now, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about, well, where do people go if they are going to leave Twitter? And Mastodon keeps coming up as a potential home base. Dan, you've had a bit of a play around. What was it like? Are you ready to jump in there? Um, I love Mastodon in theory. In practice, it's it's a bit of a... Uh, shit show. Can I say that? Um, so, oh. look, what, what Katrina's already is... sworn, so we've got our blue version <laughs> today. That's good. Fair enough. We'll just have to put a warning at the start. Um, look, Mastodon, for, for those that don't know, it's 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 described as a federated network. So, what that means, it, it's a wide range of, of applications or servers that have all signed up to the so called Mastodon Covenant, which promises active moderation against racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. After that, though, each server 
kind of sets their own rules on content moderation or areas of interest or registration approval. And I love this in theory because it means that you as a user of the platform can choose a server that is one, your interest group, but also where you have some say over the level of moderation and what content you get to see on it and aligns with your values. And they've, and still get to follow a whole bunch of people on a whole bunch of other different servers provided they've, they've signed up to the Mastodon framework as well. In practice, however, what I found is it was really difficult to set up. It took uh, probably, I don't know, half an hour or thereabouts. And, you know, as we all know, the more clicks you put in place for people to set something up, the more likely it is that they're going to bounce and not subscribe. So I think they're going to lose a lot of people because of that. You have to be pretty committed to the process to do it. And then the other problem is that once you're there, it's really hard to find people. One of the, the things that I have spent the last, you know, as we all have, just spent the last few years doing is building up, you know, a couple of thousand people that I follow on Twitter who I, you know, value their opinion or, or want to see what they're saying. And I couldn't find most of them on Mastodon. Um, you know, about 90% of the people that I was looking for, I just couldn't find a profile for them yet. But look, hopefully they'll all get there and maybe this will end up becoming something really substantial. Well, I think um, the jury's out at this point though. And I guess I'm a little bit skeptical. Well, when the voice of God is on Mastodon, I'm following God across. <laughs> um, but we better move on. The other really big story, and it's become a really big national story, is the Medibank private data breach that's been rolling out over the last few weeks. Um, more and more information is being placed onto the dark web at the moment. The Prime Minister's been calling a press conference today being both disgusted by the actions of the perpetrators and vowing that there will be vengeance. What that vengeance looks like at the moment is higher penalties under the Privacy Act and a crack team apparently going after them. But it's a fascinating moment where a lot of the issues that we talk about here amongst our pointy-headed friends all of a sudden become retail for a lot more people. And um, I think all of us have been dealing with interest from the media in what this means and where it comes from. The analogy I've been using is we're really focusing on the cybersecurity piece of it, which is the walls. We've also got to look at the honeypot, which is the whole model of bringing more and more data into um, ecosystems that can be um, hacked. But before we go into the solutions, Lizzie, one of the interesting things is the degree to which some of these leaks appear to be being curated and released almost like a, um, you know, we're launching a new product into the social media world or whatever you want to call it to, to, to create maximum impact and obviously a payday which doesn't look like it's coming for the terrorists. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, comparing it to the Optus hack um, where that uh, hacker appeared to be backtracking and um, reversing his position, whereas this seems slightly more professionalised, shall we say, hack in that the, you know, the demand for rans ransom and then the release of the data. And I, I haven't looked at the dark web or the data itself for obvious reasons, but I, I did see a tweet from someone from Children by Choice, which is a reproductive health organisation based in Queensland. and pro-abortion, talking about how there was a data set under a folder called abortion. So uh, that suggests that there was some curation by the people who obtained this information and, you know, there's some intent ideologically behind doing that to either get, capture the attention of anyone who's looking at the data but also potentially stigmatise but also send a message to, you know, anybody who may be considering that they may need to get an abortion, that you, you, the security of their data may not be guaranteed. And all of this is really bad. Uh, you know, Optus now looks a bit more like amateur hour, I'm sure, in terms of the, the vulnerability that was, that was there, but also the hacker. When there's some serious intent by the hacker, I think we're facing a much worse reality than even Optus looked like at the time, I suppose is my point. And I do remember talking about this at the time of Optus. Like if we're facing off against sophisticated hackers and the other kind of set of hackers that comes to mind is state-sponsored hacking, you are, unless you've got your cybersecurity in order, you are extremely vulnerable given how dependent we are on the internet for all sorts of uh, civic infrastructure as well as obviously personal communications and personal data storage. And so this is not like a nice-to-have good cybersecurity. It's actually essential mm -hmm. uh, both for our well-being as a people but also as a population but also um, for international relations and the future of warfare. I think this 
is, you know, we're just miles behind. So I'm I'm inclined to agree with Claire O'Neill when she says we're we're years behind where we should be in terms of elevating our cybersecurity standards. I would say that I think the government's had a hand in that by not properly promoting it um, or previous governments, but also, you know, the opposition in towing the line on national security legislation that's given rise to um, to weaken cybersecurity practices. But um, now's the time to fix it, and I'm glad this is the conversation we're having, mm. even if it's under circumstances that are really awful for those who've been victims of these attacks. Dan, you're responsible for a lot of Guardian customer information. Um, what's been the impact of the hack on your your business? Uh, yeah, the Guardian is. I mean, it's 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 largely, uh, well, entirely handled by our global team, and it's and the Guardian has always taken the protection of consumer data and privacy very seriously. So I don't think we've done anything different as a result of this. We already were doing, uh, I think, more than most. But look, it's still a, a very big concern for me and anyone. I think running a business where you're collecting consumer data because this this is a this is a very real threat now and a growing threat. I will make the point though that just picking up on what Lizzie said, I think this is the Medibank hack is substantially more harmful than the Optus one, even though the number of people impacted by Optus was greater because of the sensitive nature of the data that has been collected and uh, subsequently exposed. I mean, there is nothing more sensitive than health data about people's history of abortions. You have a sector me, Peter, which I can't believe now we've talked about three uh, burning platforms in a row. Um, for those that missed it, Peter wrote a column about this in the SMH, so I'm not divulging anything that he wasn't prepared to share. Um, <laughs> But anyway, in all seriousness, I mean, it is it is very, very sensitive data. And I think one of the things that I would like to see come out of the privacy review, which is underway, is, look, it's great that the government has acted quickly on this part of it. But I also think that not all data is the same. And there needs to be increased or, or even more robust security around health data and more significant penalties when this kind of uh, data is exposed because it couldn't be it couldn't be more harmful but I guess we'll see that the, the data privacy review is underway I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that this is going to give it more momentum Kat, um, we talk about Overton windows and external events changing what's possible in terms of reform there is privacy laws going through parliament both short term but the longer term to try to get our laws at least into the same sort of state that other parts of the world have it how are you thinking about this in terms of those broader discussions about the sorts of systems that we need to be having for um the the, the data that's held yeah well i agree that australia is about five years behind where it should be with regard to most of the uh advanced or even emerging technologies and i think that was not at all helped by the previous government. I think we had a federal government and leader who were technology illiterate and, you know, interested in building the economy on the back of mining and manufacturing. And so I think that will change it uh, a bit with the new government and Ed Husick. And I have a fair amount to do with him and believe that he's across these issues. So there's, I think we are, in catch up, but there's a lot uh, to do. With regard to these breaches, I think if we again, if I turn it on its head, what is good is this notion of safety by design is starting to come to the fore. And uh, the eSafety Commissioner, Julie Inman Grant, she and I are doing a lot of work together with regard to getting ready for these sorts of things in the metaverse, which are going to be just so much worse and starting to introduce uh, privacy and safety by design into all processes across the business. So I now talk to audiences about customer experience design. It shouldn't be just customer experience design. It should be customer experience plus privacy plus safety by design. And that's going to be the big change that we see as organisations start to pay attention to Optus and to Medibank and then to all the other big brands around the world that regularly get breached. So Uber was recent, Microsoft recent. Um, so that's one part. The other part is I was speaking to a telco executive who was not from Optus, but he was very frustrated and said, look, actually, we don't need all this data that we've got on from these customers. We could actually just sell a phone plan. If you gave us your credit card, we didn't don't need anything else. So we don't have mm. to have these massive amounts of data that then is, is open for being hacked and being uh, 
used in you know any very bad way so I think it raises lots of very good and needed questions and from my perspective in the work I do in web 3 in the metaverse it's like well you know we've done a pretty poor job in web 2.0 and just general business let's have this as a wake up as we stare into the rapid coming of uh, web 3 technologies and metaverse technologies let's get this sorted and get some proper security privacy cybersecurity programs in place. Excellent. And we will be going much, much deeper, pardon the pun, into the metaverse in the second half of the show. We, we should um, finish up our review of the news, Dan. The other development this week, and it only dropped last night, I think you might be the first person to Australia to have read it, is the latest um, episode in the riveting series, which is the ACCC Digital Platforms Review and Implementation Plan. What do they come up with? And is it one that's going to sell as much popcorn as the news media bargaining code? Uh, I doubt it would sell that much popcorn, um, but you never know. Uh, yeah, so this drops uh, overnight. Uh, I have to confess, I haven't read all 200 pages or thereabouts of Damn. the report. I have I have read the exact summary and tried to get my head around most of it. But um, uh, yeah, and there's a, there's a lot in there. So it's the fifth report from to come out of the Digital Platform Services Inquiry. Um, unsurprisingly, it continues to find consumer and competition issues from the growing dominance of the platforms, and especially, I guess, the gatekeeper roles that they play across many products and services. So, you know, these include scams, harmful apps, uh, fake reviews, inadequate dispute resolution, um, and obviously increased market concentration. So. There are essentially two key recommendations in the report. So firstly, the HCC has recommended stronger consumer and small business protections to promote, I guess, trust and confidence in the platforms and minimise harm. So it recommends targeted measures to protect consumer and business users uh, to digital platforms against scams, harmful apps, fake reviews, and minimum standards for digital platforms, dispute resolution processes, uh, including the establishment of, of an independent ombudsman. So look, this is really welcome. Um, it's important because at the moment, most of these platforms are based overseas. They're largely unaccountable to the Australian public. So for instance, if a business does receive a fake review on Google or Facebook, it's not based in fact, it's very difficult for um, businesses to, to have this removed. Or if scam ads are run across both of the platforms, it's very hard for consumers to make a complaint about that, let alone have it acted on in a timely manner. So this is definitely needed. The second part of the report was a recommendation for targeted competition regulation, uh, effectively the, the introduction of a bunch of codes for different services. So I guess building on the um, news media bargaining code and, and applying these to different platforms and services that, that exist in the digital economy. So they've introduced a concept of a designated digital platform um, that would allow the ACCC, I think, to identify which digital platforms hold a critical position in the Australian economy. And this is quite similar to what the UK has done with their digital markets unit, where they've got um, platforms which they've called strategic market status. And what that does enables the regulator then to be able to come up with codes and implement uh, regulations based on those for the different services that um, are operating without it always having to go through legislation and go through parliament, which can take a long time and, and often, often make it difficult for regulators to catch up with the platforms that are moving much faster ahead. So look, I think it's really welcome. I mean, it's whether the government is going to prioritise this with the agenda that they've got at the moment, uh, I think is doubtful, but I am encouraged that, that, that this is, momentum is continuing to build in two areas uh, of the digital economy, which I think are going to have a really substantial improvements, and that is competition and privacy. And if we can improve in both of those areas, then I think we go a long way to solving a lot of the problems that we talk about on this show. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Although I guess designating platforms is good in theory, but the news media bargaining code has shown us that platforms will do everything they can to avoid being designated. So is this, Lizzie, just going to be a replay of that, that there is all, you know, there, there is a stare down just to prevent that baseline regulation that I think they actually want? It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like this quite a sophisticated Damocles sword that's hanging above the platforms. Like there's a few hoops mix metaphor you've got to jump through in order to um, I don't want to jump through a heap of the sword yeah that sounds like a circus trick um one of the things though I did wonder Dan is like whether you think that worked in relation to the news media bargaining code I remember at the time that it was introduced that enforcement mechanism was seen as being effective like it's deferred it's not necessarily immediate but everyone did come to the table and do deals but the question is what happens when those deals expire and there's a real 
possibility that they be they won't be renewed like that's you know facebook then may consider exiting the the market if again you know and um it's not it's and then then it's not great having a non a not very responsive tool at your disposal to regulate and deal with this kind these kinds of matters so in some ways i think there's this I get the impression that a lot of people think the news media bargaining code worked because post um, its introduction, a lot of money changed hands. But the question I think is long-term, is that sustainable? Is that really the kind of regulation we need for these platforms given their sophistication? You know, we need to move beyond just a consumer lens, of course, and just a market-based lens too for regulating these platforms. But, um, you know, even in, in with that focus, I think there's there are some questions around whether it's an effective form of regulation and whether this will work for other kind of aspects of the platforms too. Yeah, I mean, I think the it was obviously the threat of designation had the same result as designation when this was the centre of attention a year or so ago. And I think you raise a good point, though, and that is that what if the caravan has moved on in a couple of years' time? Is it is it going to be as effective. Um, I mean, obviously it will be cleaner and easier and um, for all of us if the, the platforms were just designated from the beginning. And that applies, I think, to all of the codes that the ACCC is proposing now as well. But I guess we just have to weigh these things up at the time, don't we? I mean, it's it's it was a good first step, I think. There's a long way still to go. What I'm encouraged about here though, is that I think they have recognized that having mandatory codes works uh, I guess the next step is we've got to figure out how to implement those codes in a bit more of a clean and effective way than perhaps we did the first time around with the news media bargaining code. But um, hopefully we'll learn a few lessons. Just one final point before we move into the metaverse. I've got a real issue with the sequencing of all these different pieces. Like the, it was meant to be a systematic um, and systemic response to the monopoly power of the platforms. And we had the news media bargaining code, all that money changed hands. Another recommendation was privacy reform, where it seems like a number of the media companies will push back on that because they've got commercial interests that actually make them starting to look themselves more like platforms than media companies. And then you've got these other quite specific measures feeding through. And I just am concerned about the lack of coordination and logic in the reform agenda off the back of what was a very, very good report. I don't know if you want to, you know, your job's not to defend this, Dan, but I'm interested <laughs> in your reflections before. We well, I think on. I agree. I mean, it's it's the, the, the original digital platforms services inquiry was incredibly wide ranging, you know, very good work. And the news media bargaining code was just one small part of it. Now, obviously, it was a part that I was quite happy that the um, the government acted on. But and gee, I, the media covered it well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it is it's a fair criticism. I think this is this is just one small part of many. And privacy re- reform and competition reform, as I've just said, I think it, there's so much more we can do in both of those spaces. And if we do, we'll go, we'll solve a lot of harms. We have had a change of government. Obviously, they've got a pretty packed agenda at the moment, but I think it's fair to say, hopefully without coming across as partisan, that it was a bit haphazard, the government's approach to digital platform regulation uh, in the last term of government. Let's see what what the Albanese government, uh, how they approach it. Let's move into our deep dive with Dr. Kat Thornton, um, who is one of the founding members of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance. We've invited her in because we talk about the metaverse a lot, normally as a mixture of a either a comedy or a horror movie, and um, very interested in your take on it, Kat, but particularly what the, uh, maybe start off with just what the mission of this alliance is and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, thank you, uh, Peter. So the mission is around working to get policy and regulation for the metaverse in order to protect particularly women, children and the vulnerable before the metaverse is fully the way we do life and business, which is potentially three to five years away and probably definitely 10 years away. So we are working with policymakers and regulators in Australia, New Zealand, and now globally to start to see what policy is required, everything from individual harms, so AI-based avatars who are manipulating young people in the metaverse, 
right through to organised terrorism in the metaverse. And when you say the metaverse, what is your definition? Are you, is this Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse or are you looking at this more broadly? And sorry, I introduced you as Kat Thornton. I'm sorry, it's Katrina Wallace. That's okay, no worries now. So yeah, let's, let's start with Metaverse 101 and what is the metaverse? So the metaverse is, there is only one metaverse. And the metaverse is a construct that's borrowed from 1999, Neil Stevenson's book, Snow Crash, where he refers to a metaverse, which essentially pretty much describes what we're seeing today, but his is, is quite a dystopian um, outcome. So the metaverse has been borrowed by the tech community to describe virtual worlds or immersive worlds. And I'll unpack all this language in a minute. So virtual worlds or immersive worlds or simulated worlds where people come to make social interactions so so in we're in a metaverse at the moment no so not really no 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 we're definitely not so think that we now have three worlds the physical world which is you know this table and and um the physical world that we're in and when we see each other face to face physical world world number one world number two digital world we're in the digital world now. There's a digital interface with us. Our phones are largely digital. Our computers largely digital. Uh, media largely digital. Now we have a virtual world. Now the challenge where people go, oh, is it real or is it really a thing? The challenge is that unless you have a pair of augmented reality or virtual reality goggles, you can't really access the virtual world. So people go, oh, it's not really a thing. And I go, it is really a thing. There's 470 million users on a monthly basis. The industry's valued at 210 billion US dollars right now, due to be 1.5 billion US dollars by 2029. So it's a real, it's as real as we are in this digital world. And I am sitting here at this table in this physical world is the metaverse. Now there's about at least 160 virtual worlds that are the, the main ones that we know sit within the construct of the metaverse. But the key words I used there before, Peter, are immersive. So what it means is, so we're not really in an immersive environment now. We're, this is kind of like a bit 2D, really. You know, lovely. Except we're sharing space and time in the internet, not on the internet. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is nothing compared to a virtual reality. But I like this. <laughs> this is average. <laughs> this is so average compared <laughs> to being fully immersed in your 3D world where we talk about this concept of presence in the metaverse. So presence means that we are just, it just feels one step back from being real so for example I'm just gonna I'm starting to do a podcast but in the metaverse with a friend of mine she's in in London her name is Julia Streets she's a speaker like, like me so we met in the metaverse and did our first recording like our first podcast recording right and we like cartoons but we were she was in London and I was in Sydney and we were like high-fiving each other and like little stars come out of our hands when we high fived and and she was emotional because it felt like we haven't seen each other for years that we were so close together it was just short of being physical so the immersive nature the presence of it makes this a very special technology yeah can i ask you though i mean like every time meta releases some kind of update on what they're doing in the metaverse they're roundly mocked for it just being awful like who wants to conduct a team's meeting in in with a headset on where you don't have any legs it's buggy it's a, a cartoonish version of yourself I just wonder whether like I can understand the potential for augmented virtual reality to be really empowering and interesting and fun but I also think it's fair to say that under the stewards stewardship of Mark Zuckerberg it's going, it, it, this is to some degree the future of his company, right? This is what he's making the bet on. He, he, I don't think Facebook can continue um, growing in the way that it is. So he's he's doing a, a switch, a pivot. He's bought up the hardware. He's bought, got a vertical monopoly. He's going to dictate what this looks like. And to my mind, 
that means it's going to be bad. I, I, I just wonder what you think about that. Are we just going to have a, a world that's created by tech bros for tech bros where everything is monetized and um, good the, the good aspects of the technology or the things that could be powerful and useful will have to come into being in spite of that, not because of it? Yeah, great questions, Lissy. So uh, Zuckerberg, by changing the name of Facebook to Meta, kind of made a big statement that, that you know, he was wanting to own the, the metaverse space. But but truly he does not. There are is so many younger, new, young metaverse platform providers coming in, but we mostly we can't see them in, in the mainstream because they're still small, they're getting funded. There was $120 billion of venture capital funding in the first half of this year into metaverse-related young companies. So when everyone goes, oh, metaverse isn't really a thing because meta is stumbling and they're laying off staff and their avatars that look like stupid cartoons, we, we shouldn't even worry about that. Meta will do their thing, but we've got Microsoft, big player in the metaverse space, more that the business metaverse. One of their platforms is Alt Space VR, pretty cool little metaverse um, virtual world to be in they'll do much more when apple comes to market i hope within the next 12 months i actually hope within the next six months most likely with their ar possibly vr glasses and their operating model this is a game changer then we're we're in it gets to mainstream really early but really ar before vr so i wouldn't worry about meta i i I'm sad that 80% of all of the headsets that are shipped for virtual reality are meta headsets. That's a bit sad, but actually they, they work perfectly well. I have one that, you know, they're, they're a reasonable headset. The new headset that they released two weeks ago, the, the Oculus Pro now can pick up your legs. So the avatars will hopefully have legs, but also to a worrying degree, picks up your eye tracking movements, your facial expressions. It'll know everything that you are feeling, this uh, headset will now be able to detect. And that's the worry. Isn't, isn't the concern though, uh, Kat, that, that in, in controlling 80% of the hardware and investing more than any other company, including Microsoft, uh, potentially not Apple, we don't know yet, but in, in investing such a huge um, proportion, I mean, it's looking likely, maybe not number one, maybe Apple's just got too much of an advantage in every other area for them to become number one, but probably probably a number two. I mean, maybe the Android of of the new of, of this new platform or, or the metaverse or whatever we call it. Isn't that the concern? I mean, what, what worries me is that the data collection practices of a lot of these companies in Web 2.0 are concerning enough. The data collection capabilities of Web 3.0 I like that on steroids. Right. Uh, how can we mitigate this? Like, what 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 can we do to mitigate the competition and privacy issues that are almost certainly going to come from a company like Facebook having a really dominant position, if not the dominant position, in this next, in this next computing platform? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. To be extremely concerned about Meta's role, Meta's data collection policies and approaches with owning the headsets and the, the software for their metaverse, which is Horizon Worlds, and they have Horizon Worlds workrooms, Horizon World venues, different uh, Horizon Worlds. So I think we should be extremely concerned. And the concern really comes from the ability for Meta to coerce and manipulate individuals in the metaverse at a far greater level than they currently do and the, the level that they currently do across um, Facebook and Instagram is already pretty extreme. So so this you're absolutely right. This is extremely worrying. We don't see any new advancement on the business model other than it will be around engaging young people's attention, knowing and tracking a young person's exact feelings and responses to everything they see in the metaverse, then serving those things up in order for them to either buy something or potentially, you know, belong to some interest group, you know, potentially, a, a, a you know, an extremist interest group. So all of this is at play. There is no regulation really that will stop them doing this now. And the thing at the Responsible Metaverse Alliance uh, we are most concerned about, and our chief scientist is Dr. Lewis Rosenberg, um, very famous metaverse and VR commentator out of uh, California. 
what he's most concerned about is the AI-driven virtual avatars who become virtual spokespeople in the metaverse. And so for an average user of a, an avatar in one of these virtual worlds, they may not be able to distinguish between this is a, a human avatar or this is a robot avatar. And then these uh, virtual avatars can be used to manipulate and coerce in the most extreme way because almost in real time they'll be able to calculate how is this person reacting, what are their interests, getting feeds, and then coercing them, leading down a certain path. So the metaverse is a very dangerous place. Meta will be one of the more dangerous ones, and that's why we're calling for regulation right from now. This is so interesting to me, Katrina, to hear you say that that it's a dangerous place because, I mean, I I agree with you. I, I, I think it is really dangerous. I mean, not least because I think a lot of design choices around safety are an afterthought rather than something that's initially uh, canvassed in the process. But if that's true, what is the, what, I mean, how do you conceive of your objective with the Responsible Metaverse Alliance? Is asking for responsibility in this space mm. a, a bit of a problem because it provides then cover for what is essentially dangerous technology? Should we be instead talking about how we can stop it, how we can slow it down, how we can have the politics of resistance to the metaverse, how we can resist um, monopolization by one of the most dangerous companies going around Facebook? You know, should we, should we be opposed to the metaverse on that basis rather than asking for it to be more responsible? Or Can, you talk can I kind of bounce that off a bit more? Because I was going the same way. Is, isn't this like an environmentalist trying to clean up a coal mine like isn't this just clean washing and if you say that this is a bad track to go down mm. aren't you going to end up being the trust mark for a development that we should be pushing back on like is there you know what i'm saying yeah yeah do, Lizzie and I. Uh, yeah yeah so so i think it's too late for that right so it's too late, like horses out, trainers left the station. This stuff Why? is already, already happening because it already, the technology already. So, if you're suggesting, okay, let's slow it down and in, you know, instead of just looking at regulation, like start, slow it down. I want to bring to light a story that came out, I think it was today. And Dan, I don't know if you've covered this. So, this was a story about the Oculus VR founder and designer of the Rift, Palmer uh, Lucky. Bad dude. He's unveiled his new VR headset, which is set up. I thought it was a hoax, right? So wait for this, right? It's set up that if you are in a game and you die in the game, you would also physically die because the headset would be attached to uh, some sort of a, a a bomb or something that would actually kill you in real life, right? So I read this today and I said to Lewis, our chief scientist, this can't be real. Like, this is a hoax. Before I make any, before I like blag all over twi- Twitter or blag all over in LinkedIn about this, is it a hoax? Because it's no hoax. It's probably a publicity stunt. But then as I'm digging more into it, this is real. This man is creating games and headsets that if you die in the game, then you die in real life. What is that? That is just extreme and extraordinary. So my point here is this is already gone. Like this is out of the gate. So, yes, can we slow it down? But we stop people smoking because it's really bad for them. Unless you propose to me a positive version of a great metaverse, I reckon there is a legitimate debate to Lizzie's point that the activism should be this is a pathway we don't want to go down. We know that our friends at the University of Technology, Ed Sandow and Nick Davis, are working to slow down the way facial recognition technology right. rolls out. Yeah. So I, I'm just interested in that 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 balance between facilitating what is a bad technology and you know, yeah, yeah, I'm stopping hearing, it. But look, I, and this is also the problem with us being Australian, right? So as we say in the AI field, we're this backwater country where Silicon Valley entrepreneurs will come to make money. That, that's where we're headed. We have little to no say in big technology agendas like the metaverse. We, we really don't. And I'm not sure practically, I, I think what Liz is saying in theory is good and what you're backing, Peter, in theory is good. But I'm all about actually what's going on, punching through it, showing what's there, and then seeing what we can do about it. 
I don't know there's any slowing this down. I'm certainly going to take on board. I'm going to talk to my team about that. But I don't know there's any slowing down. I'm keen to hear what Dan thinks. <laughs> I don't know if I have Dan's an Dan's normally <laughs> in your role in these forums, Kat. Yeah, so I'm normally the one Dan that thinks, Lizzie yeah. and Peter gang up on, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of, that's why I'm probably keeping quiet. I mean, I think I agree with your point, which is that this does feel inevitable. I know that Lizzie in particular hates that sort of narrative, but it does feel inevitable to me that this is where it's going. And the, the problem that I think we always see, though, is that regulation is always slow uh, to catch up to the harms, but that's particularly the case with, with digital technology. And so this is just going at such a rapid clip that I just, I, I really worry about where it can get to. And I think the other problem with Meta, sorry to go back to, to Facebook again, but the other problem with them being one of the people, one of the companies that are developing one of the key platforms for this is they are an advertising based company. And a lot of the harms that we've seen in Web 2.0 have been because the monetization has come about via advertising rather than via selling a product. Apple, you know, makes most of their money selling devices and makes a healthy profit margin on that. Although going very hard into the advertising direction in a rather concerning way, but putting that aside for a second, Facebook, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has already said that he is selling that new version of the Oculus at below cost. And the only reason he will be doing that will be to encourage people to be using the platform and the only reason you could be doing that from a commercial point of view is so that you could be monetizing them down the track as uh with advertising well that's the most likely outcome so i just think there there does need to be regulation and regulation quick but it just feels like we're, we're really behind the eight ball i don't have an answer i was, I was hoping that that you would but um, <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like none of us do <laughs> Adrian, can i ask you a question the, um one of the things that's come out during the course of this kind of twitter palaver is you know there was a couple of people who are former workers at twitter talking about projects that they were asked to work on that were unethical and some of the I found this, these accounts really interesting because, um, you know, people who worked on these products talked about resisting doing that. You know, there was a, a notable thread about a guy who was asked to produce really um, a tool for essentially tracking Twitter behaviour, including like where where the users were in, in, in the meat space, shall we say, you know, and then being able to give that kind of information to to advertisers and it occurred to me that actually people who work and build these products are an access for organizing and um, understanding both how the technology is developing but also putting limits on what we think is ethical or good and I did see that in, on your website that the alliances run these kinds of policy forums with people who work in the space what is the feedback that you get from technologists who are building these things I mean did how, how do they conceive of the future of the metaverse yeah, so we did a uh, ecosystem mapping globally and to look at who are the interest groups that are, are doing something or starting to mobilise around anything to do with ethical or responsible metaverse. And, and there are quite a few. And when we looked at kind of the key themes in the metaverse, much more than I saw come out with AI, say, 10 years ago or, or Web 2.0, and Web 2.0 has really been since 2004, there's much more interest in, in doing ethical things by the creators. So, so it's not necessarily the tech platform giants who, like the metas we've been talking about, it's much more the designers and the creatives who are providing services to the metaverse, much more interest in, in ethics and doing things responsibly, much more interest in diversity and inclusion, much more interest in the climate change. So most people don't know that the, the AI industry emits as much carbon emissions as the aviation industry who knows that like who talks about that metaverse will be worse however they don't know what or how to do it and so we found this so uh, my organization also runs the australian responsible ai index we ran it last year and we've just got it coming out of field this year um, and last year after we surveyed over 400 organizations hmm. and measured the how mature Australian organisations are with regard to responsible AI, it was 8%. So less than one in 10 actually had any sort of maturity around doing technology responsibly because they don't know what to do. It's quite simple. So we get these designers and creators and we've got a whole community of them that go, yeah, yeah, we want to do the right thing. Zero idea on what you do. How do you code ethically? What does responsible even mean? So to me, there's like a massive amount of education that we have to do, Australia and across the world in how do you do a responsible strategy and then how do you code ethically? If we were to read 
go off and do some reading, what is the one piece that you would recommend we get our heads around? So there is a the most recognised book on the metaverse is by, I think it's called The Metaverse by Martin Ball. I think that's a good 101. Then anything by Lewis Rosenberg. So Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, uh, Rosenberg. So you'll, you'll find him all over the media and all over the internet. And he is extremely good. And he talks in detail about the harms and what we need to do about them. So uh, they'd be two. There is a Metaverse Safety Week, International Safety Week coming up between the 10th to the 15th of December. That's run by an organisation called XRSI out of San Francisco. They're good friends of ours. They do some, yeah, kick-ass work around the world on this topic. They'd be good places to start. Great. Hey, thanks a lot for your time today. Um, Anything that we need to put in our diaries, guys, Lizzie? What have you guys got planned? Oh, we've got a lot of advocacy planned, of course, so you can catch up with all our news. We did just (laughs) The Stop the Metaverse campaign launching tomorrow? (laughs) No. No, 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 don't plant that seed. I we do have a we did just launch our report into rebalancing the digital the internet economy. So looking at basically some work we did last year with creatives and activists and um, people who use the internet to um, have an income and the, as, as in everyday people uh, and how we can rebalance the econ- internet economy in favour of them. So if you want to check that out, it's detailed mm. work that we're trying to do to kind of provide a narrative in the alternative from the grassroots about. Um, the conversation that was started within these media bargaining code about how we can take power away from these major platforms. So if you're interested in that, um, take a look at that report. It was just released a couple of days ago. Excellent. And if you are from Melbourne, um, put in your diaries December 14. We're starting to plot up maybe a bit of a live burning platforms and drinks down at Vic Trades Hall. We haven't quite got it planned yet, but book in early. I also just want to plug Jordan's book, um, which is a terrific collection of stories about people whose lives have been turned upside down and inside out by the platforms. I can already see um, a second um, volume around people in the metaverse very soon, Jordan. Um, And finally, Dan, anything from Guardian? Uh, We're just going to continue producing the world's best journalism so uh, everyone can keep reading it. Thanks for being part of Burning Platforms today, everyone. Cheers. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on November 11. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.